While most of us run from fire, there's a group of brave men and women that are jumping in. Jump spot, five one the ground wind's still the same. From the sky. Ground winds are two to three out of the southwest, two to three out of the southwest. Skydiving into the smoke to stop the fire in its tracks with just the tools on their back. 1500, get in the door. You're clear, you're clear. Get ready! Smoke jumping has been in practice for more than 80 years. It started shortly after World War I as a way to reach wildfires in remote spots that couldn't be reached by vehicle. Large wildfires destroy property and put lives at risk. Smoke can affect people living thousands of miles away, which we've seen this year when a huge chunk of the United States experienced poor air quality due to the Canadian wildfires. British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, wildfires there, a lot more than typical for this time of the year. And as the weather changes, the smoke changes. So some of the haze you're seeing today is wildfire smoke from Canada. Today we're going off the radar and into the thrilling and physically demanding world of smoke jumping. Getting the perspective of these extraordinary individuals who dance with danger to protect our forests and communities. I'm meteorologist Emily Gracie, and you're listening to Off the Radar, a production of the National Weather Desk. On the show, we dig deep into topics about weather, climate, the ocean, space, and much, much more. Our goal is to help you better understand the weather and to love it as much as we do. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Flying to a remote area and jumping out of an airplane into a wildfire sounds absolutely terrifying, if you ask me. But to the 400 smoke jumpers that work for the U.S. Forest Service, it's just another day at the office. To us, it's just a job. It's a fun job. It's just where we go to work. Today, I'm talking to Mike Leslie. Mike recently retired from 15 years of smoke jumping with the Redmond Basin, Oregon. He jumped as many as 50 fires a year and takes me through the process of a job from start to finish. He told me about the training process as well as the most physically exhausting part of the mission, which may actually surprise you. He also answered the big question I had, which is, how do you get out after you've done the job? Mike spoke to me today as a civilian and not a government employee. While Mike's jumping days are over, he still fights fires in the Francis Marion Forest with the prescribed burn group. So sit back, relax as we dive into the inferno and get a firsthand account from the exhilarating world of smoke jumping. Talk about cool careers. You're kind of... uh retired now, right, from this position, but you had a uh, long, I assume, career as a smoke jumper. And I want to start from the very beginning of the program, because I didn't know what smoke jumping was until recently, and I'm guessing a lot of other people don't either. Do you know anything about the history of how it got started? Yeah, that's part of rookie training. You're 
supposed to learn all this and I remember most of it. Some other things are going on with aerial experiments and aerial firefighting, like in 1929-ish. It evolved into like 1939, the Forest Service and Eagle Parachute Company, I believe, got together and uh, did some experimental jumps and went to Washington. And that was a success. They found out they could throw people into trees and it would be okay. Um, so it was a way to get people to remote fires quickly before they got big. And so the next year, uh, the actual first fire was jumped in the Nez Pierce forest out of a base in Montana. Um, so there's a big argument between the Winthrop base and the Montana base is the birthplace of smoke jumping. The Winthrop base is the longest. It's been in continuous use since 1939. The Montana jumpers joke that Winthrop's the birthplace of practice jumping, the birthplace of smoke jumping's in Montana. So, so there's trash talk among smoke jumpers. Oh, well, of course. Yeah, it's, it's very competitive. <laughs> so take me through your career and how you got started doing it. I went to school to be a wildlife biologist and went to work for the Forest Service in South Carolina after I graduated school and was working in wildlife. And fire is a huge part of any ecosystem management, wildlife management, and I had an affinity for it. Um, so I did that. I spent a few seasons in Wyoming on a hotshot crew, which is a 20-person organized formal crew that's together all summer. And they generally go to the bigger fires than when you see on the news. Let me preface that. This is, I went to work after Hurricane Hugo, which pretty much destroyed the Francis Marion National Forest. And there were smoke jumpers coming from Region 6 from the basin went through the basin Redmond. And so I was working with them. That was my first real exposure to working with Forest Service personnel. I was like, wow, everybody is this motivated and this fun to work with. And I want to work for the Forest Service. After my hotshot days, I rookied in Oregon in 1997 and just jumped that one year. And I left the Forest Service completely to go do some other things in private business. And then came back in 2009 and jumped until April of this year. Other than learning the history, what is the training process like? Generally, about five weeks of very stressful, very intense physical training that incorporates the parachute handling. When the when you show up to be a smoke jumper, you're expected to know how to fight fire already. They're gonna teach you how to safely manipulate the parachute. All the other specialized things that go along with smoke jumping. Um, but you learn, you know, throughout your career, you're always learning. But that five weeks is very stressful for a reason. You know, everybody, all the old guys want the rooks to, to succeed, but they want to know they can rely on them too when, when they need to. Is it? as dangerous as it sounds no I, I in my opinion to us it's just a job you know it's it's fun job <laughs> for sure it's just where we go to work it's where we go to the office so take me through the process of when there's a fire we have this room called a ready room where all our jump gear is hanging on racks ready to put on it's about it's about 90 pounds of gear that you're wearing the resource order will come in and dispatch there's there's a start somewhere They'll decide to jump it. The resource order goes into dispatch. Dispatch will send it over to the jump base. Whoever's doing operations on that day will sound the alarm. And you have two minutes to get dressed and get ready and get on the plane. And then you hop on the plane and, you know, they'll usually announce where it is, whatever forest it's on. Um, 
How long are you traveling? It can be very short. It can be very long. Um, planes in Redmond right now can reach down into Northern California and up into Washington, over into Idaho, Nevada. So we can be there in probably two hours and usually travel with three and a half to four hours of fuel. And you're wearing the gear while you're traveling. You're wearing, you have your parachute, you're, it's connected to you by a harness. We're wearing protective suits. You know, we take our helmets off once we, once the plane launches and we can move around inside the airplane to be comfortable. Is there a bathroom on the airplane? <laughs> Not on ours. There's, there are two new planes in the system that have bathrooms, but the condition is you have to take it with you when you go. So it's in the bag. <laughs> or you have to clean it when you get back. I don't remember exactly. I only jumped out of it twice last summer, but I never had to use the facilities. So <laughs> Wow. Okay. So um, what happens next? So you get to the fire and uh, there's a person on the fire crew who is a jumper. He's on the air crew. He is a jumper. He's called a spotter. And so he's going to be looking out the door in the back with the, it's called the jumper in the door, the the who would be the IC of the fire, the incident commander. We call him Jix, jumper in charge. Um, so the spotter and the Jick will be standing in the door as we're circling the fire, kind of sizing the fire up, seeing, looking for places to go, things go bad. Um, you know, how are we going to get out of there? Because they're usually really remote. And most importantly, selecting a jump spot, you know, preferably some something somewhat flat, somewhat clear of rocks and logs and stumps and and big trees. And then once this jump spot's selected, they throw drift streamers, which are 20-foot rolls of crepe paper, so they're biodegradable. They're weighted with sand. And we drop those from 1,500 feet. We drop those, and we'll tell you what the wind's doing. And then ideally, the pilots will line up. You time them. The pilots will line up on the streamers, fly from the dream streamers to the jump spot, and then say there's 200 yards of wind drift. They'll fly. The spotter will estimate 200 yards past the jump spot and release the streamers. And if everything's right, they'll land in the jump spot. So then he has the exit point where he's going to slap us to jump. That's done 1,500 feet. Then we climb up to 3,000 feet, usually jump in two-person sticks. So two jumpers will be in the air at the same time. I think last year we averaged five jumpers per fire out of 59 fires that were jumped out of Redmond. But it could be anywhere from two jumpers on a fire to a whole load, which would be 10 jumpers for our planes. And then you hit the ground and you just start working? Yeah, so you hit the ground. Um, you got to take all that gear off and you bag it up if you have time. We have pack, big, giant pack-out bags that can fit everything in there. Once all the jumpers are on the ground safely, the plane will come around and do cargo runs. So they have to throw our tools. And we have, in a firebox, there's two tools, two sleeping bags, food and water for two jumpers for three and a half days. That's thrown out. Once that's on the ground safely, then you get your tools out. You hike to the fire. Hopefully it's not too far. And um, What is not too far? Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, Generally, it's going to be a quarter mile to a couple of miles to the fire. How much weight are you carrying at this point? At this point, you're, you've shed all your jump gear. You're just carrying what we call a PG bag, a personal gear bag. Um, and it's got some got all your water in it some food for however long you think you're going to be on the fire and so we're carrying that you're carrying a tool and maybe a chainsaw if it's in the wilderness we have to get approval to use mechanized equipment in the wilderness otherwise it's a crosscut saw so 45 pounds probably is the most and what are you using to fight the fire other than the saws um pulaski's it's just just a hoe on one side and an axe on the other side um it's a good 
digging tool. It's a good universal in just about any fuel type. So you're just digging a trench basically around the fire, taking fuel away from it. And then once you get it aligned, we usually start bone piling, which is when you just take the bigger burning debris inside and just pile it up and let it burn down to nothing. And once that's done, we usually sit on it for a while and wait and see, look for smokes. And if a smoke pops up, we'll go put it out and wait. And then usually the next day, we'll go back and we hand feel. We crawl through every inch of the fire and hand feel all of the fire to make sure we got all the hot spots out. If there's a hot spot, then we'll stop and deal with that. And we'll cold, it's called cold trailing. We'll cold trail the whole fire again until there's no hot spots left. Then we bag all our stuff out and figure out how to get to the nearest pickup point for a, a ride. and carry all their stuff out and our bags are usually on the hike out are usually i mean most of mine have been 120 to 130 pounds so that's a real physical exertion is leaving to me that's the hardest part of the job it's the most taxing on our bodies it's the worst for us physically you know just that because i'm a fairly big guy six feet 185 pounds and it's miserable for me so you know i've got a five eight dude that's 130 pounds, he might have his weight on his back. So it <laughs> kind of keeps me from whining too much. So I think, I mean, the number one question I had when I learned about this was how do you get out? We know how you get in, how do you get out? So you have to actually hike, you have to walk to the closest road. Is that how that works? Yes. Generally, we plan on packing out. Like my rule was six miles or less. And if there's a trail available, you know, not too far from where the jump spot is, then we're probably going to pack out. Sometimes the helicopter is offered and that's always appreciated where you can put all your heavy stuff in a sling and get it slung out. And then you're just hiking out with your PG bag and some water and food. That's much nicer. And that happens a lot more these days, but you should always expect to pack out. Have you had any health impacts? Not from jumping, no. <laughs> Not from inhaling smoke or anything? That, that's a bit, I don't know yet. It hasn't presented itself yet, yes. Have you ever been in a situation where you were scared for your life? For my life? No. It's, I've been in situations where like this is starting to turn. You can tell. I mean, when you've been around fire enough, you can start to tell when conditions are changing. And sometimes you just have to back off and let it munch, let it do what it's going to do. Because it's a force of nature. I mean, we're fooling ourselves to think we can control it. And as time has gone on, you did this for 15 years. In that 15-year span, did you see an increased need for smoke jumpers as wildfires have increased? I think we could be utilized a lot more. And, you know, that's a whole nother trail we could go down that we've been putting out fires so successfully for so long that should be happening naturally that we've created this artificial huge fuel buildup combined with climate change. It's unfortunately there we've created a need for ourselves now, but more than ever, like there is a time to let fires go and do their, what they should be doing naturally. But that window is smaller and smaller every year. Are there meteorologists involved in the process at all? We get a briefing every morning. We, you know, we check the weather all the time. We get really excited when we see thunderstorms coming through, you know, Big lows get set up in the Gulf of Alaska and they just kind of funnel storms across Northern California, Oregon. And so <laughs> that's always an exciting weather pattern for us. How many smoke jumping bases are there and where are they located? Um, there's seven Forest Service smoke bases and two Bureau of Land Management smoke, smoke jumper bases. Uh, the BLM bases are in 
Boise and Alaska, but they have what's called spike bases that they'll set up temporarily when fire activity dictates. There are several in Alaska and, and Boise has them all over the Great Basin pretty much because that's their country. And the Forest Service bases are in Washington, Oregon, California, Montana, and Idaho. I'm guessing it's very rewarding as a career. It's super rewarding. You know, it's a great way to see the world and get paid for it. You know, we travel around and do prescribed burns in the southeast and all over the country these days, actually, um, in the winter, in the off months when we're not jumping. But rewarding? Yeah, it's been really rewarding. I'm a natural resources person, and I understand the role of fire. and I understand how we've thrown things out of whack by putting fires out. But now there's a need more than ever because we are in the situation we're in combined with climate change. So what's next for you? Um, uh, district life. I'm burning the Francis Marion Forest as often and as well as I can. A big thanks to Mike and all of the other smoke jumpers that are putting their lives at risk every day to keep us safe. Off the Radar is a production of the National Weather Desk. Make sure you're following the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes publish every Tuesday. If you have a weather nerd in your life or someone that may just want to learn more about wildfires and smoke jumping, please share this episode with them. We'd also love you to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Let us know what you think of the show and give me some ideas for future episodes. Go to YouTube. Check us out there. There's a whole special we've put out about wildfires this year. This podcast is produced, hosted, and edited by me. Special thanks to Eric Newell. I'm meteorologist Emily Gracie. Make it a great day. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.